of the Gadigal people. This week's episode, I am sharing with you a climactic collective episode of Nourishing Matters to Chew On with Anthea. This episode is entitled Working Together, Land Care, New South Wales Aboriginal Engagement, and it's a conversation between Anthea and Craig Aspinall. I picked this episode because I think it's important for all settlers to learn how to walk with traditional owners to heal country and that not only does Craig have some wisdom about you know better ways to work together to make sure that country is cared for but he also has some really useful ideas about how all sorts of volunteer or environmental organizations can and make sure that you don't need privilege to participate uh, because the environment is for everyone. This is part one of a two-part series. And in the second half of this series, Craig is going to talk with Anthea about both land and sea. And, and I'm really excited to listen to that, which you can find on the Nourishing Matters to Chew on general feed. All right, that's enough from me. On with the show. It is the first iteration of an Aboriginal component to the Landcare-funded program in New South Wales. Working together, that's the spirit and the topic of my great conversation with Craig Aspinall from New South Wales Landcare that we're sharing over two episodes because it was such a long, great chat. This is the first part. Enjoy. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome, Craig. Thanks for joining me for Nourishing Matters. What's the country where you're joining me from today and, and how's it looking in these lockdown strange old times we're all living in. Yeah, thanks, Anthea. Um, I'm sitting in the Hunter region in the city of Newcastle, which is um, a Wabakal or Wabakal country. And I'd also like to acknowledge um, my traditional owners and, and elders and knowledge holders and any Aboriginal people who may be listening today. Thank you for that. I thought I might lead in with a quote from someone who, perhaps like you, was quite a visionary for healing country and for people coming together to work together to do that. 
I firmly believe that the natural strategic alliance in this country should be between the farm sector, the environmental movement and Aboriginal people. Because though they come to it from different directions, deeply ingrained in each of them is the desire to better care for country. We're a resource-based economy, but we're not using our natural resources in a sustainable way. We need to be creative in looking for new economies in rural and regional Australia. Some farmers say might be paid for ecosystem services to manage country. Aboriginal people could be contracted to protect their traditional country and to preserve its cultural heritage. There may be other possibilities, carbon sinks, emission trading, or ecotourism and cultural tourism. As we undertake that task and look at those issues, we need to understand that we're dealing with social restructure in rural and regional areas, as well as economic adjustment. This is where relationships are critical, and especially power relationships between various groups. Unless there's equity in the power relationships, the outcomes are going to be flawed and in the long term unsustainable. That's an abridged quote from Rick Farley from an address he delivered in 2005. He was a visionary man. He was the chief executive of the National Farmers Federation from 1988 to 1995. He was a fierce advocate for Indigenous rights and who, with Philip Toyne from the Australian Conservation Foundation, successfully encouraged the Hawke government to commit to formally support the land care movement. Landcare then became a national program in 1989 with bipartisan support for the Decade of Landcare Plan, bringing farmers and conservationists together as never before. It's taken a while. The desire to come together to better care for and heal country is something that many Australians are yearning for, whether via popular support for the Uluru Statement from the Heart or through the thousands of community-based and voluntary programs such as those that are run as part of Landcare and the broader natural resource management movement across the country. I'm speaking with Craig Aspinall, who is an Aboriginal man from the Biripai Nation on the lower north coast of New South Wales, who has devoted his private and working life to the natural and cultural values associated with land and sea country. He's been a director of Ocean Watch since 2005 and is passionate about the work that Ocean Watch does. It's one of the 56 NRM regions in Australia, but it is the only marine-focused natural resource management organisation responsible for enhancing fish habitats and the marine environment. What we do on the land has a huge impact on the health of our oceans and marine biodiversity. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Craig about his work as the New South Wales Community Landcare Aboriginal Engagement Officer with New South Wales Landcare and the exciting and really important Working Together Aboriginal Communities Engagement Program that he leads. Craig, you spoke at the recent Landcare Australia National Conference about the Working Together program. And the title of your talk was, I really liked it, was Breaking the Barriers Between Landcare in New South Wales and First Nations Peoples, Recognition, Value, Collaboration. Let's dive in from there. Can you tell me about what the Working Together program broadly is and how it came about? Yeah, certainly. The Working Together program has been renamed from its original title being the Aboriginal Communities Engagement Program component of the New South Wales Landcare Program 2019 to 2023. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> so thankfully, we've got a nice trendy name for it. But essentially, um, it is the first iteration of an Aboriginal component to the Landcare funded program in New South Wales. How did it come about? Um, look, a lot of work was done behind the scenes before I've commenced in the role. The Landcare movement making some pretty strong representations to government from the previous four-year program, which was called the 
local land care coordinator initiative where um, a range of positions across New South Wales were funded by government over four years to establish uh, land care coordinators to help facilitate um, all things land care throughout New South Wales and, and help build the capacity of uh, local groups, you know, join people together, facilitate engagement and obviously, you know, run projects and things like that. So this new program, uh, towards the end of the previous program, a business case was made for an Aboriginal component of any new program that was funded by the government. And yeah, that's where we ended up with today. So the Landcare program being $22.4 million investment counts for 84 coordinators across New South Wales, 12 regional coordinators. Uh, the rest of them are local coordinators um, across the state. And $1 million was contributed towards an Aboriginal program to get it going. And um, the remit on it was pretty broad. And thankfully, um, to their credit, the people who were responsible for delivering the or preparing the first strategic plans and implementation plans didn't try and dictate too much about what that program would achieve. So the first deliverables were essentially to put an officer on board and then establish a steering committee and maintain a bit of a database, with the key result being improved collaboration between land care groups and Aboriginal people, or the flip side being reducing barriers between Aboriginal people and land care people collaborating. So really quite a broad mm. a broad brush, a, a broad remit, which has actually been a breath of fresh air because so many times as an Aboriginal person in many roles I've had over the years, you come into a very defined, rigid portfolio as an Aboriginal employee to say, yes, you will deliver X, Y, and Z, and here's your limitations. So it was, a, it was really uh, refreshing to um, come into a role that I could make my own. Yeah. The importance is uh, having the right person on the job who can be quite objective and and draw on their own knowledge and experience, but not not find favour with any particular area of New South Wales or, or any particular group, which has occurred in the past. Naturally, people want to look after their own their own mob and their own crew, but being in a statewide position, I've really had to take a um, very um, measured approach to try and assist everyone across New South Wales that I can. Yeah, really helicopter and quite strategic and big picture, which is really exciting, yeah. Yeah, so the working together, uh, Monica came out of a steering committee meeting where we thought we'd need to brand this up a bit better and that was one of my first strategies. So <laughs> um, in terms of the program, there were a range of source documents and there were a range of workshops that involved Aboriginal people who went before me and it's important that I, I acknowledge their efforts and their work. There was a workshop in Albury and there was also a workshop in Dubbo. And it's people like um, um, Jeanette Crew and David Crew, who've Aboriginal people from down the, the, the Murray, Murray region who've been involved in land care for many years before this program came up and were strong advocates for it to be funded and, and, and delivered. So I pay my respects to those fellas. But yeah, out of all those source documents, I sought to package it up into themes or I just sort of saw what, the, what they wanted. Here's, here's the recommendations from the Aboriginal people Here's the recommendations from some land care people. Here's some recommendations from the, the, the overarching um, strategic documents and what their outcomes are. Package it all up, put it together into an action plan. So I end up landing on five key themes. And those themes... Yeah, I was going to ask you Yeah, that. and those themes are um, uh, recognition, Aboriginal recognition, um, Aboriginal representation and inclusion, relationships and collaboration. I think that's a no-brainer, that one. <laughs> awareness and education and then um, resourcing because I guess Craig historically there have been 
numerous and many barriers to Aboriginal people perhaps feeling welcome or able to get involved in land care. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, well, look, I've, um, I've, you're absolutely right. And um, it, this is long overdue. And I am proud to say that um, Lanky New South Wales has an organisation in its strategic plan, Lanky New South Wales being one of the two partners in the Landcare program, the other one being Local Land Services, the state government agency. Really, for Landcare across the country, what New South Wales Landcare is doing is pretty groundbreaking and is a bit of a first, isn't it? Yes, yes. And and um, and I am proud of, um, of Landcare New South Wales' uh, statement in its strategic plan that says that we acknowledge the original inhabitants of this country, being the First Nations people, as being the original land carers. So a narrative I've, I've, I've been working to flip any time I chat with someone is that, because uh, it was mentioned to me, that um, we want to get more Aboriginal people involved in land care and joining land care. And I said, oh, hang on a second, isn't it that you want um, more land care people to be involved in Aboriginal land care? Because uh, we are the original land carers. So you need to flip flip that mindset around a little bit. <laughs> And, um, and and see it from a different perspective. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's a, a, a groundbreaking uh, initiative. It sh- really shouldn't have taken till, till, you know, 2019 for this to come about. And it shouldn't, have, it shouldn't have really taken New South Wales to be the first state to roll it out. So you're right, part of my um, impassioned plea at the National Conference presentation was about saying, Hey, you fellas, where, where's your Aboriginal employees? How many Aboriginal people are employed in Landcare Australia Limited? How many Aboriginal people are employed in the other state peak bodies that relate to Landcare? And it's great to have a range of uh, um, funding and projects and report, and I'm sure there's significant investment in Aboriginal outcomes that involve you know, collaboration with, with Landcarers or not. The real rubber hits the road when you employ someone because every Aboriginal person that gets employed can benefit up to five or six other people you know, in that family and even and even more beyond. It's that ongoing employment I see. Um, having rangers employed for a year because that's when the funding comes and then they run out. And I, I know of situations like that in the North Coast where unfortunately those those poor trainees go from being on, you know, Centrelink benefits, you know, for a couple of months and then there's some work. And it's actually had perverse effects in relation to sometimes if there's only three months worth of work being on offered in bush regen because that's where you know the land care group or, or whoever is going to engage them yeah or the little grant came along for that's right in the end those those fellas were saying uh look but it's not worth us getting off the dole because the amount of effort to get back on the the benefits you know makes it really not viable for them to come and do three months worth of work and that's really sad that's right so it's about upping the stakes of respect and really serious inclusion and strategic inclusion. Yes, and trying to move on past this cycle of, of grants and, and funding and, and even, I mean, it's it's an eternal frustration for all of us, I suppose, is the cycle of government elections where, you know, you can really only project four years' worth of an investment in whatever great activity you're doing. And then um, it has been the case that uh, a lot of fantastic work gets unfunded after four years purely because of a change of government or a change of policy. Yeah, and, that, and that, I think that applies to the NRM sector across the board pretty much, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So many rich things you've just shared there. So really the program, it's, as you say, you know, 2021, the year of healing country. Uh, it's really not just about getting more Aboriginal people involved in land care as it currently is, is it? it, it it's really much more about perhaps uh, helping to reimagine how we think about country and being on and with country, isn't it? 
Would you like to perhaps share your thoughts or, or help non-Aboriginal people such as myself? Would you like to share your thoughts about what country, capital C, means for Aboriginal people and for how non-Aboriginal people in land care are perhaps travelling in developing their understanding of and embrace of Aboriginal understandings of connections to and obligations to country? Yeah, look, it's, it really comes down to the, the big R word, relationships. And part of the initiative of the program is, is I've been focused on relationships between people, but really country to me is about relationships with the land mm. and, and, and people. Mm. And so, you know, country for me is, 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 is life, provides everything for us. It also um, has tremendous wellbeing aspects to it. And I just know when I drive a couple of hours north back to my original country around Foster Tunkari area, and I know as soon as I get somewhere around the Bulladila Mark, somewhere, you know, just north of the mile, you can see and feel, and I'm not a vegetation expert, but you can just see and feel the, the trees and the plants. And it's this um, familiarity of, of everywhere has, everyone has somewhere where they go, where they just feel warm and just like, this really feels like home. And, and, and that's what, that's what country is, you know, and, and it's different for everyone, obviously. You know, mob from different areas aren't going to get that same mm. same internal funny feeling when they, you know, go through through my country, but they're going to get it when they go through their own. And I remember um, an Aboriginal colleague years ago um, telling me, because I said, oh, Dawn, I, I get really, um, I don't know, when I'm when we get through this bit, I get real funny, you know. And she said, that's your, that's your country talking to you, Craig. You know, and I just went, oh, oh. You know, so I, like I am a, I can be a relatively deep spiritual thinking type fella. But it is something that I've had to learn from from other Aboriginal people because I didn't grow up as an Aboriginal bush black. Um, I didn't grow up as an Aboriginal boy at all, really. Um, I was raised by my non-Aboriginal mum, single parent, only child. I was a happy kid, very sporty. Went to school. Look, I knew I was Aboriginal. Listening to the you know the family talk at night and things like that, and 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 my mum talking to her sisters and stuff, and them sort of you know trying to ask her you know, when she was going to, you know, talk to me about certain things and, and at what age and stuff. So I'm pretty clear I'd ease pricked. I'd be sitting up at night listening to what they were saying. So, look, I knew what, what the go was. But the thing is that, you know, all the kids on the mission stuff, I, I didn't live with them. And so um, I wasn't immersed in their culture. I think they knew that as well. And I've got a real funny story was, um, was um, I was crossing near the mission at Foster um, to head to the sporting ovals to play soccer one, one Saturday morning or whatever. And I didn't cross right on the on the corner of the mission now. I sort of went diagonally across across a spare block. And there were some Koori kids playing out the front yard of the of the first house there. And um and because it was always like, oh, they they you know, they're gonna bash me or whatever, which, you know, that had occurred over the years at school and stuff. Cause for from their point of view, they'd be saying, Look, you're a black fella, you should be living here with us. What what are you doing? Not that I was living flash, I was in a bloody caravan park. But anyway, <laughs> I wasn't living a high life, but um to them. You know, I was I was an Aboriginal person, and I wasn't living in the community with them, and um, which wasn't my fault, of course. But um, I was aware of that, so I was in a little bit of an avoidance mode. Anyway, I started crossing this uh, this this spare paddock, and they started chucking rocks at me. And I thought, oh, you know, would you a bit scary? You know, so I'm 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 hoofing up the the steps a little bit faster. So I must have got at least I don't know. Flashing back now, it's a bit like when you catch a fish, and it was only six inches long and ends up 12, 12 foot long when you tell a story 20 years later. But but I reckon I was 50 metres away from these fellas 
and they chucked this biggest rock, biggest rock the size of a bloody softball, and um, hit me square in the back of the head. And lucky was a, a pretty round sort of pebble-shaped rock, and it got me on the flat, so there was no blood, no nothing, and it just sort of knocked me down a bit, knocked me forwards. And it's amazing because, I don't know, a non-Aboriginal person might, you know, that might be the trigger for them even further hating Aboriginal people the rest of their lives or, you know, those bastards or whatever. And funnily enough, I always remember what I thought. I just looked around and went, far out, these fellas are deadly. That dude threw that from that far and got me right on the back of the melon. I just went, these, these people are supreme athletes. What an impressive feat, even though I still ran, I still ran like a coward to, to me soccer game. Uh, it was one of the things I've always reflected on my Aboriginality and just that innate knowledge that, you know, of who I was in my culture, even though I wasn't connected to it, I always knew it was there. And I always knew I was able to connect with it later on sometime in my life. So I didn't really answer your question about country, I suppose, but um, it's that uh, relationship, it's that um, growing up, it's, uh, and look, and that is my country up there. And, you know, I love the beaches, love the surrounds, immerse myself in it, not necessarily from an Aboriginal perspective, so to speak, but um, they're still your country. Mm. This place is precious and we know it's it's damaged and I think, Many, many Australians are, are really connecting with country in different ways very, very deeply. And your story is a story of many Aboriginal people, particularly on the East Coast who were dispossessed of country and from family and so forth. So you really have uh, an incredibly rich base to, to understand and engage with these issues. Well, and that really lends itself to the quote you gave from Rick Farley earlier on. Yeah, he, he was a visionary. And you're right, that sense of ownership and, and connection is not solely limited to Aboriginal people. So non-Aboriginal people who have, who have managed to acquire land and, and be here for some time, five, six generations, they too feel the same connection to country. And they may not be able to articulate it in the same way that Aboriginal people do in terms of that spirituality. Um, many have, and many have, have really, you know, thought deeply about it. But even those with just a, um, a shallow landscape look at it and the changes in their landscape and stuff in certain aspects, when they get exposed to an Aboriginal way of thinking, that's when light bulbs go off for them because they sit there and just go, oh, geez, okay. So what I've been feeling on my property is what these fellas have been feeling for all these years. I get it now. And then, you know, you break down all those barriers of, you know, assuming that the Aboriginal people want to steal your land or claim it or any of that sort of stuff. And so... People just need to look deep inside themselves, I think, and draw the parallels between, you know, because it's not some unattainable thing that only Aboriginal people can get a connection to country. Yeah. But it's just that we've had it for a really long time. And when it's so long and, and over so many thousands of years and through generations and through through blood, then even a, a, an Aboriginal guy like me who was raised essentially as a white kid, living in a caravan park, going to school, doing his HSC and all that sort of stuff, there's still these ungerminated seeds inside us that can come out at some stage and really help you, you know, find who you are and, and, and reveals that cultural connection. So that's a bit deep. That's going a bit deep there, Anthea. <laughs> oh, going a bit deep. <laughs> well, no, thank you for sharing that. That's really rich. So developing resources and ra raising awareness two ways, in different ways, coming at it from different lenses, but having in common a sense of what we love and we might love it for different reasons, but what we love we can care for, we will care for. You won't, you won't care for what you don't love and what you don't see. Um, it all sounds 
pretty key to building people's confidence to get to know each other better, more comfortably, and to work together with respect. And the Aboriginal protocol guidelines you've developed as part of the program so far are really powerful to help with that. And the Working Together Small Grants program also looks really key as a way, as a tool, if you like, that you've developed to to give people the confidence to connect and just get on with the conversations, really. But before we speak about the protocols and the grants program further, Perhaps we could step back a little bit and I might ask you to comment on perhaps some of the sort of taken for granted things about land care that are perhaps a part of the culture or the structure of the way it's worked that can pose challenges but can also be opportunities for change. And I'm thinking of things like, you know, about volunteering, for example. That's that's quite a specific sort of uh, thing that some people can do more easily than others, isn't it? Would you like to talk about your observations about land care in terms of its culture and how it operates that are pretty key to enabling and encouraging Aboriginal people to be more involved. Yeah, look, and it, 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 it lends itself exactly to um, what you're saying there in relation to education. But uh, uh, all credit to my program manager when I shortly after I commenced in the role was high, highlighting to me, I mean, I'd always known that Landcare was was a very much grassroots volunteer-driven organisation with only a few people in paid roles to help coordinate, to herd the folks to go plant a few trees on the weekend was pretty much, you know, mm. how, I'd, uh, how I'd understood it. But she pointed out to me that the volunteering is a privilege to some extent because um, if you're in a situation where you're still trying to secure the fundamentals of life, which is, you know, shelter, housing, food, clothing, then you're really not in a position to be able to volunteer your time for a hell of a lot. Um, you're absolutely right. That lends itself to me trying to educate the Landcare community. And look, I've been really the most, one of the most um, refreshing components of coming into this role is the appetite and, and support and interest there is throughout the Landcare network of New South Wales in engaging with Aboriginal people, acknowledging and bringing them along for the journey as well that, that that they're going on because they see that this is a massive gap that was missing. You know, this land care work is, is fantastic, but it's missing a, a, a key component by not bringing our First Nations people along, you, you know, those activities and that that journey as well. So you're right. One of my first um, tips was, and I guess I'm moving into the protocols and grants, but there's been a tremendous um, interest and appetite for Aboriginal engagement. However, a tremendous lack of confidence in understanding and knowing how to do that. And that confidence is, is pretty much that lack of confidence is driven by a fear of offending people. And I've delivered a lot of cultural awareness sessions to, to groups, classroom style, which is my, I'm an old, old maths teacher and old university academic. So um, I'm standing out the front of a group of people and talking has never been a problem. But um, getting in the bush and... I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that, Craig. <laughs> yeah, but getting in the bush and talking about scar trees and stuff, obviously based on the upbringing I described you, you know, isn't something that I would consider myself qualified for. And we've got heaps of our mob who, who, who are. So uh, my skills are in, the, in where I am. But um, at the same time, educating people and just pointing out the parallels and, and the equivalence to things in, in, in their lives and, and, and their society. It's really, you know, enough is that much of a shock, but it, it seems it to them. It seems unattainable. It seems I don't know where to start. I don't want to upset people. I don't want to offend those people. And that's coming from a position of respect and concern for the for the past. You know, that they- Absolutely, absolutely. I expected that land care, one person's land care is planting a tree and another person's land care is, is killing feral pigs. 
or getting better productivity out of out of their patch of land to you know grow better crops or make more money. Mm. And it's fair to say that notion of um, fear of Aboriginal people claiming their land or something like that. I think we've moved on from that now. Yeah, that's good. The Land Rights Act was 1983. The Native Title Act was 1991. So they're this relative state and, and national pieces of legislation that relate to um, to land rights to some extent and rights to access land. And I think we've seen over the past 30 or 40 years, the sky hasn't fallen down. You know, Johnny Howard's map of showing all the big shaded areas of Australia that were going to get taken over by Aboriginal people from the, the WIC decision or the you know, that the native title legislation was downright fear-mongering because we've shown that, um, no, in actual fact, Aboriginal people's lot in life hasn't really changed a hell of a lot from that legislation. We were able to access some some pieces of land, but in terms of in terms of closing the gap, we were, you know, closing the gap didn't exist then, but um, we've still got issues. So whilst that was, you know, seen as a, a, a way to assist Aboriginal people to, 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 to move through those disadvantaged status indicators not a hell of a lot has changed but at the same time that should provide some relief to landholders that hey we're not coming here to steal your land and 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 we can't by legislation so i think a lot of those barriers have been breaking down and that's been the most refreshing thing is that um, Mm. the interest and appetite right across new south wales from east to west has been awesome but at the same time the way people are conducting themselves when dealing with aboriginal people needs some education and that's why i developed those protocols sheets and the guidelines and we'll get to those quickly commenting on what you've just said which is pretty amazing like it is about volunteering and so recognizing that that is a privilege in terms of time and resources so structuring whatever it is you might do with absolute input and sensitivity to what time and when and how people can make time is is really uh key to culturally sensitive well-designed uh, projects together um, and also what you just touched on then about you know traditionally land care has been a fairly conservative organization because it's often been associated with land owners on farms and you know bush corridors on farms and things like that and as you've just said yep. how aboriginal people relate to land isn't necessarily about ownership it's about rights of access and stewardship and custodianship and so forth and a couple of decades on there's now a greater body of residual trust or better trust and understanding, knowing that you can come together without it being some sort of questions of ownership in a sort of Western sense. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And look, it, it lends itself to the purpose of the Land Rights Act, which I always pointed out when I was delivering cultural awareness training, was that people think, they went, oh, it's such a shame. They got this land grant for this patch of land and then they went and sold it to a developer. And you know, we thought they'd want to keep that land for conservation purposes. And you need to realise that the purpose of the Land Rights Act in New South Wales of 1983 was to recognise dispossession of land as a key economic asset. Yes, yes, as in everyone else has made managed to build wealth in Australia for themselves and for the country via land ownership, and yet Aboriginal people got left behind on that building of wealth mm. and improving their standard of living. Um, if if they, you know, obviously Aboriginal people value special places and value country. But at the same time, it is really, it is the kangaroo that's on the dollar coin that we hunt now because that's what puts food on the table. So, you know, not many of us are out with spears, spearing kangaroos to make a feed anymore. Some are, but plenty of us aren't. you got to get a job. You, get, you need money. You need cash. you got bread and milk. You know, we're not making damper in, in the rocks and stuff many, many places anymore. We go down the shops just like everyone else and you need money and you need food on the table. So. Yeah, um, but that, that you... dispossession, you know, through the Land Rights Act has led to to some 
through the land council system, some have been able to uh, turn that into some revenue and then use that revenue for community purposes, such as housing and culture and employing guys to manage other patches of country that they may own. We're all in the 21st century, different ways to steward and care for country. and, and Yeah. And you're spot on, and, and I, I think I know where you're heading with that um, volunteering aspect and linking it to my presentation at the national conference was that I've been pretty strong and in this role and the whole time, and it links to the small grants program, which we'll get to. But if you want Aboriginal people to be engaged, you pay them for their time unless they choose otherwise. And that certainly happens plenty of places. Aboriginal people give their time, knowledge and 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 input freely very generously yeah but you want a brand new program to be introduced and you want aboriginal people to come along then you need to pay them just as you'll pay an ecologist you'll pay any other specialist who has maybe a university qualification well guess what blackfellas don't need the university qualification some of us and not all of us of course but some of us have knowledge that you'll never get at university and it's the sharing of that knowledge for many years wanted that to be given for free don't they want to just do that out of the benefit for the environment? Well, yeah, they care about the environment, but what good is it given all this information and knowledge and they're, they're still sitting in poverty and can't feed themselves or, or raise their children? So it hasn't been uh, anything that's been um, contentious. No one's really questioned me on it. I've just reinforced it. And by reinforcing it, they're going to say, well, well, we haven't got the funds for that. And so that's where the small grants program came in from the program. So it's really about respecting people's time and knowledge. And like any expert or busy person, if you want them to be taking a lead role and sharing very valuable knowledge, then respectful and just sensible to remunerate and acknowledge the deep contribution they're making. Absolutely. Let's turn now to the Aboriginal protocols that you and your colleagues have developed. I've I've got them. I've printed them all off. I've read them all. I'm sure I'm transgressing a few of them already, (laughs) but they are really clear, powerful documents. And I understand that part of the way you created them was via a pretty fun interactive webinar involving 40 land carers, partners and community members modelled along the lines of You Can't Ask That, the ABC show uh, that's very popular. But that was a really clever way of going about getting to some pretty curly issues and challenges and touching on some sensitive issues in terms of history and how people who aren't familiar with Aboriginal culture feel uncomfortable or, or are just plain ignorant about some of the things they might or should know about. So, so that webinar was pretty amazing and we, I don't want to put you on the spot too much about that, but it was such a clever way of going into the heart of some of these issues. C- can you tell us about what the four protocols or guidelines that you've developed are? Perhaps tell us about the names of them and what they're each tackling. No, thanks, Anthea. Those um, protocols are drawn on a range of resources that I've had over the years from delivering cultural awareness training sessions but also um, resources that I've, I've gathered through through my roles at university and the like as well. And look, they're not they're not rocket science to most Aboriginal people. What I've got written in there, it's it's Aboriginal Studies 101, if I can put it that way. These are really the basic building blocks of engaging with Aboriginal people. Having said that, I've got disclaimers on them and say, you know, your experience may differ from what I've described here. For example, a um, good one I did for a lot of educators and teachers and the like when I was delivering training was that uh, an Aboriginal child lowering their eye is not a sign of disrespect, but it's, it, you know, the old the old school teacher yelling at me saying, look at me when I'm talking to your son was is one of those prime examples. But having said that, it may well be that um, an Aboriginal kid in your class may not lower their eye and may, may you know, may establish eye contact. So, it's just having awareness that these things may be something that, that you need to consider, but they're not necessarily compulsory. And I guess 
that's part of the challenge, I guess, is that um, people have an expectation that, that there's a one-stop shop, that there's some easy thing. They, they want it to be easy. The webinar that, that you described, the you can't ask that. I had 33 questions and gathered from a much broader set of questions. Um, we did a similar type of activity for a NADOC week event when I was in the in the public service, in a New South Wales public service. So those 33 questions were gathered from around 150 questions that were done via live stream um, anonymously. So when people are able to ask things anonymously rather than being in a room putting their hand up and maybe asking a question that they're a bit ashamed or, or a bit embarrassed about or going to feel silly about, they were happy to type that in on an anonymous live stream <laughs> to a panel of people um, answering the questions, obviously with a moderator to, to screen any that might have been a little bit, a little bit how you're going in terms of um, racially or whatever. But the main thing I, I, I see, and none of these protocols that I've got here are rocket science and they can be found in a whole lot of other places. So even the ones about one of them is welcome to country and acknowledgement of country. That's your fundamental thing. Out at our Dubbo gathering we just had in June, which was a gathering for the Landcare Program participants. So we had around 130 people from right across New South Wales come to that gathering for the Landcare Program. So not necessarily your grassroots people or your landholders. These are the people who are in the paid coordinator positions for the funded program I mentioned at the start. And I did a presentation there, which or which used a, um, a film, I guess, from a fellow at University of Wollongong, where Jade Kennedy at the University of Wollongong does a bit of a 15-minute speech on welcome to country and acknowledgement of country. And the key points of that was that um, the example he provided, and we see it everywhere we go, you might have a meeting or whatever, and the chair of the meeting will say, all right, just like to acknowledge country, a lot of knowledge elders, past, present, emerging, et cetera, et cetera. And then they go, all right, now let's get down to the real business of why we're here today. You know, the acknowledgement is fantastic, but still really missing the point. And Jade's presentation on there really pointed out that it's a call and response situation. Okay, so we do welcome the country. And it's like, you know, we get the Aboriginal guy and we bring you in. We're going to have some guests over. Let's get the Aboriginal fellas. And, um, and bring them in and do a bit of a dance and a showcase and a welcome. And then let's put them back out in the bush, you know, back out in the backyard again. You're not allowed in the house. Yeah, it's your intent and a bit of research and deep thinking you might have done about the place and the people where you're meeting and with whom you're meeting and letting that infuse and actually inform how you go about the business. It's the doorway, if you like, to building mutual respect and really seeing and understanding the place, its history and its people in the present. That's how I often think about it. Um, I encourage anyone, it's on YouTube. It's, um, his name is Jade Kennedy. It's a University of Wollongong TEDx presentation and it really paints a picture perfectly. But the protocols document I, I um, put together, pretty much just ex- it's, from rec- it's lifted from Reconciliation Australia and it's just explaining welcome to country, acknowledgement of country. And even in the state government, um, we introduced some plastic credit cards not an original idea, but there's a few of them happening around the place on lanyards. So in the end, we had about 4,000 New South Wales public sector employees all with these lanyards that had a, a sample text of an acknowledgement of country and explaining what it is on the other side. Now, the purpose of it, though, comes with a caveat because if someone just sits, stands there, pulls up their card and reads the acknowledgement word for word that's there and then starts the meeting, that really that's really not the purpose. That's that token version I described earlier. So I, what I try and tell people, and early in the job, I had Landcare coordinators sending me their samples. Craig, does this acknowledgement sound okay? Craig, I want to put one on the bottom of my email. Does, is this wording all right? And it's like, hey, you fellas, 
I'm not the guru who says that your wording's correct or incorrect. True purpose of acknowledgement in a country is that it comes from the heart, is that it has some meaning to it, that you are understanding the words that you're saying rather than reading them from a card, which any, any fool can do. Okay, so I've never done two acknowledgements of country the same way. I have a bank of phrases that are in there, and depending on where my mind sets the goals for that particular day, is that'll be the acknowledgement. It's more important that it's heartfelt than the actual words you're saying. People want to get the words perfect. Don't worry about the words. It's your intent behind it. And those are the other three protocols, fact sheets that relate to tips and facts, communication, working with Aboriginal people. They're all just your, your nuts and bolts of your, your different you know, ways to communicate. You know, Introducing people to the notion of sorry business. Uh, if you had a meeting organised next week and someone's passed away in the community, f- forget your meeting. So it's just about that Western philosophy of let's let's get things done, let's get this business done. Long periods of silence, and you know, f- filling the gaps. It's just so uncomfortable for a lot of non-Aboriginal people to to sit in a meeting and just have a period where even one minute can seem like an hour if no one's talking. This um, burning desire to fill those spaces <laughs> by a lot of non-Aboriginal people, but in 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 fact you know, those periods of, of silence were a feature of Aboriginal meetings and not just talking for the sake of talking. Yeah, and reflection and yarning as an iterative, circular, non-confrontational, but snowballing together rather than Western ways of talking about these things is often. Yes, yes. Yeah, or either or decisions, you know, um, allowing space for the conversation to move and for people to move together without having to uh, contradict each other or, or confront each other. And look, part of those um, I've used in my presentations, I used it at both Dubbo and the national presentation. A couple of them I highlighted was um, Aboriginal people can see straight through any lack of authenticity or self-interest. We may still come along for the ride and play the game because there is something in it for Aboriginal people to exploit, but we've got pretty strong radars on on picking up what's something that might use us up and what's something that's genuine. So my call to, to land carers is, is to be genuine, open and honest. And it might take time. You'll get tested. But if you are, are patient and resilient, you, you'll end up with a very enriching, ongoing relationship with Aboriginal people in your area. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. And Craig, I really liked what you said about quite culturally very different things about how we understand, how we communicate. Um, you mentioned about looking people in the eye and, and mainstream expectations about looking in the eye, but for different uh, Aboriginal people, something that's not not done. And somewhere else in one of the, the fact sheets, uh, you, you refer to how, you know, often hearing or direct hearing can be quite an issue for Aboriginal people. And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit deaf myself. <laughs> um, so actually just understanding that these are what might appear evasive communication or or non-communication, it's often, it's just, it's coming from a very different place and it often means something quite different, doesn't it? And look, the the default position for an Aboriginal person who may be not understanding or not appreciating or... Or not hearing, or not hearing. Yep, but Mm -hmm. uh, is to nod and say yes. It is the first thing. An Aboriginal person will just go, they'll sit in a meeting and, and nod and say yes before they're sitting there going, going no if they don't understand it because they just go yeah whatever you want yeah I've seen it all before oh you fellas are here again wanting to do something yeah yeah the crux of my presentation in the national presentation was to point out consultation is not collaboration collaboration is co-design and co-design can only happen 
when both parties completely have an understanding of what it is they're trying to achieve. Mm. And then they work out how they're going to do it. Someone introduced a term to me not, not so long ago, which was uh, another fantastic eye-opener for me. We've got a pandemic at the moment with COVID. We've got another pandemic in Australia, and it's called the white saviour syndrome, where we have a lot of people think that they know what's best for Aboriginal people. They're on board. They've, they've educated themselves. They may be fully culturally aware, but still have this belief that they know what's going to, they know how to fix it. They know what's going to, they know what's best for Aboriginal people. Look at this great thing I've got for you. But hang on, did you design that with those? Did they ask? Did those people ask for that? Are they ready for that? Do they have the capacity? It's just so many things seem to want to be imposed on Aboriginal people rather than just like this program where I was able to be given a, a budget. Here you go, mister. Here's some pretty broad achievements we want you to get out of it. But you work out how, how it happens best way for Aboriginal people and that's what I've been trying to do in this program. And the good news, I suppose, you've already alluded to is that many people are really, really keen to sort of have the longer conversations without clear outputs or fix-it dates. A lot of people within the land care movement are really keen to, to learn how to engage and to do it without being rude or stubbing people's toes. Like you, you said earlier that the, the enthusiasm and the concern and that there's a lot of con- enthusiasm, but people often aren't acting because they, they're worried about doing exactly what you've just said, appearing as though they've got the answer or, or telling people what to do and they're very conscious of not wanting to do that. Is that right? Yeah, and look, it, it harks back to that confidence thing I was talking about before and I, I'm, I'm sort of uh, flummoxed mm. sometimes because I'm like, I, I didn't really do anything, but that, that lady is... It's so, so um, thankful and so gushy and, and so, oh, Craig, it's so fantastic you're here. <laughs> All I did was run my eyes over what she was planning to do or had a quick chat on the phone. And, and we've identified that is that is it, it's a type of mentoring, I guess, you know, in, in an informal way. Yeah. But it's um, just my existence or just, just me being present or being available for them to call or, or send an email and get a, a quick response has, has been the most valuable part. And for me, really quite quite easy and, and, and simple and that's why I said I've been a bit flummoxed because I thought I'm I'm not really doing much I'm not really I can't hang my cap on the fact I had a chat on the phone to a lady but in, in actual fact the meaning of that to her is is untold and then you know so I build that confidence and then from there they can go forth and conquer you know what I mean and, and forge their relationships because I can't do it for them yeah. but I can definitely hold their hand along the way and that's essentially what it is it's a bit of a chaperoning I'll chaperone them to the party and then I leave the party and go chaperone someone else while they're continuing <laughs> with whatever positive activity they can do. You're really being a bit of a mentor, which is just amazing, which is a pretty good lead into um, talking about the Working Together Small Grants Program. What's its focus and how's it being taken up and by who? Because it's really about supporting people to take that next step after you've given them some mentoring tips, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, it's finished now, um, Anthea. We, had to, we closed it in April, so we opened it for six months, um, heavily oversubscribed. Um, but fantastically, we had, you know, um, I came on 12 months into the program by the time they got the position advertised and sorted out, which means that there was a, 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 an amount of funds from year one that was unexpended. So I was able to top up as many small grants as came in. I was prepared to, to accept. So we had 41 applications, 36 of those were approved, total expenditure of around 70,000. Our original budget was 50. Ten of those were Aboriginal applicants directly applying to us, which is fantastic. And those Aboriginal applicants also receive um, a year's free membership of Lancashire New South Wales, being the peak body. 
and the benefits that um, that come along with that. And those those sorts of benefits are things like sort of insurance, you know, public public liability insurance for events and things like that. Is that right? That seems to be the main benefit that people associate with with joining the peak body. But we've got tons of others, you know, access to grants that may not be accessible to others, a mm-hmm. um, whole range of, of, of member benefits. Um, newsletters, keeping up to date, you know, connecting with people. Our member services area has really grown in the last few years and that's been very deliberate from a Landcare New South Wales point of view and that was a bit of a carrot as well. Fantastic. Thanks, Craig. This seems a really good place to take a break, so that's what we'll do. So listen in to part two of my chat with Craig for more about New South Wales Landcare's Working Together program and how those special small grants have been taken up and for what and for our really interesting discussion about fire sticks burning that featured at the recent National Landcare Conference. And we also talk about really important connections between land care and healthy marine environments. So so come back and join us for part two in a week or two. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and stay in touch via instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on facebook at nourishing matters to chew on if you like what you hear and would like to support us you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favorite podcast app so other people can find us too Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.